you never know. Sometimes you do something small and you think, oh, that can be a nice addition. And all of a sudden there is a huge adoption and it's really changing the game for the users or for the revenue and you see a meaningful uptick from it. And sometimes you really think that something is going to be really big and you work a long time on it and then you release it and it's not. It's a flop. Hello and welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the best place to learn about entrepreneurship from the people who are killing it with their businesses. Today, I'm talking to Adi Tatarko, the co-founder and CEO of Howls, which is a marketplace for home renovations, refurbs, interior design. Basically, everything, including the kitchen sink. Howls connects homeowners with tradespeople and has been a big success since its founding in 2009. Adi and her husband have taken the business from an evenings and weekends passion project to a $4 billion company operating in dozens of countries. Imagine that kind of outcome from a side project indeed. So, how did Addy make it happen? Well, let's hear the whole story from the top. I grew up in Israel um, in a suburb of Tel Aviv, which is the center of Israel. Pretty normal childhood for Israeli you know, kids, lots of family and friends. Um, the culture is very close and warm. I remember lots of weekends spending the time with the family and friends at, at you know, the beach. The weather is, is great. Just very happy. I like to think of even my high school days as a good balance between, yeah, study is fine, but we need to enjoy life as much as possible. So I did try to spend time uh, with friends and socialize a lot. And I was in youth group and um, was very, very active uh, teenager. Good. Okay. Well, what did you do before Howls? You know, were there sort of any entrepreneurial instincts coming into your mind, into your surroundings before the business? Yeah. So I did work after I um, graduated my first uh, degree from um, the Jerusalem um, University. I did work in tech in small startup companies. One of them brought me later on to New York as it was merged into an American company. So that was the experience, small companies, more on the finance and business side. It was a lot of fun, though I will say very, very intense to the level of, you know, 16 hours a day, around the clock, lots of work. And at some point I thought to myself, well, this is great and fun, but at some point in life when I'll want to have family and have kids, I'll probably want to switch over or do something different because it's, I can't possibly do it all. So that crossed my mind as well. But, but that was that time. And that's how I worked in Tel Aviv and later on in New York, celebrated life. And, you know, when you are young and I want to say restless and, and, and no kids, you can pretty much do it all at some point. If those of you, and I was one of them that, that won the kids, that triggered the question, how can I even do it all? With the founding of House, obviously you started the business with your now husband. So let's talk a little bit about that. How did you meet him? Yeah, so Alan and I uh, met at our early 20s. Both of us went separately with friends to um, Thailand. And um, we just met on a bus uh, 15 hours bus from Bangkok um, towards the island. And the bus driver actually instructed me, moved me from the place that I was 
sitting at um, to the open spot at the back of the bus next to Alan. He just wanted to clear some space for more folks to come in. And he didn't know what he's doing, but he basically <laughs> placed me next to the person that would become my husband, partner, dad of my kids. And here we go, um, 26 after, I'm talking to you now. So you meet, you meet a guy in a bus in Thailand, very nice. Uh, you're now running a multi-billion dollar company. There's quite a lot that happens in between there. So who's been the driving force on your entrepreneurial journey, would you say, out of the two of you? First of all, when you're looking at a very, very long journey, you obviously have um, different times, different uh, partner is kind of pulling it um, or we're pulling each other, but we're basically doing it together. If we go back in time to the very early beginning, I will say that it was very clear to me, Alon was at eBay uh, when it all started and I was working in a financial planning firm. So the one gap in the story from before is that after I was in tech for many years, I did switch with the kids and I did start a different career in financial planning and I went and studied again and started working in a firm and I had a very different career path at that point. So when House started as a side project and we both did it at our spare time while working full time and raising, back then we had two kids, and it started ramping up organically and spreading um, quickly, I thought to myself that it's very likely that Alon will continue with this full-time if this will indeed happen. And he would be the force and he will run this, but I will stick to my plan. That was my original thinking. Again, alongside with my thinking tech and crazy hours with, with kids. No, and I already was in a very different career path. Well, you see the reality. It's not exactly what happened. But I definitely thought, and he was definitely the force that I knew will carry it over and will be the entrepreneur that will do it all the way. When it came to the money time, the, the, the moment that we had to decide what to do, he actually said, I think that you need to quit your job. You need to do it with me. You, you're going to be much happier and you should be the CEO of the company. But to say that all this time that we worked on it before we raised the first round and turned it into a real company, that I knew that this is what's going to happen, absolutely not. I thought that he will be the one that will run it all the way, not me. Partnership. It's important to choose the right partner, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. My wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> yes, um. true. it's true. And sometimes he's saying it and it's personal and sometimes he's saying it and it's, you know, related to house. And obviously it's not for everyone to do it this way. Some people are saying, what? We would go crazy to work with our, you know, partner in in our personal life, also in business. And others are saying this is so good. So I think it's, it's very, very personal and it depends on the people. Uh, but the beginning of house, we just bought our first house ever the process of trying to renovate it um, on a very limited budget with very limited knowledge and no connections to the relevant professionals to help us, um, just relying on a few referrals that we've got from people we knew, led to um, unhappy, not dreamy process at all, where we spend lots of time, energy, and money that we couldn't afford throwing away just to get plans that we didn't like, couldn't afford, had to start all over again a year later. So so the process wasn't fun. And 
we felt like there must be a different way of doing it. But the more we digged in and talked to other people, we've heard horror stories. Not that it's comforting that you hear that others suffer too. It's actually not at all. But in, in this case, it led to, you know, that thinking and later on to, you know, the birth of house that if you have technology for it and if you bring everybody together and you have transparency and it's all very visual and you're connecting the dots and everybody's talking about it, leveraging a central platform, that may ease the process for everybody. So that was the beginning of it. It started with the community around us in the Bay Area, um, in California, and both professionals in the industry, architects, designers, and so on, and homeowners like us, 20 parents from our kids' school, were the first users of this platform. And from there, it started growing and spreading. Um, No marketing by word of mouth. Professionals told their clients, clients told their professionals to join, um, homeowners told their friends, professionals told their colleagues, and it started spreading outside of the Bay Area pretty quickly to other parts of California, then other parts of the U.S., other states, and later on to other countries as well. By the time we decided (laughs) and finally talked to someone with encouragement of, of someone entrepreneurial, we knew from the community to potentially bring money and turn it into a real company, we already had hundreds of thousands of monthly users. And again, there was no money going into marketing because we had no money to do that. It was just the product user experience and the love of the community that helped us grow it to that point, which we were felt very fortunate and lucky. And I'm glad now that we didn't leave it there and we decided to take it to the next level, but it wasn't that obvious back then. Yeah, it's really interesting because you use language like, by the time we decide to take money and build it into a proper company. And it's interesting because I wonder how much of that language is based on your background of being from Israel, like Startup Nation, or being in the Silicon Valley, of course, like Startup Capital of the World, where money rules everything around like the, the narrative of what is or isn't proper. Because it sounds like the business, obviously, at that point of deciding to take money was proper you know, to an extent, right? As in that was kind of the the size that you were at at the time of taking money was presumably where a lot of companies that have taken seed and maybe even series A money would hope to be. Yeah, I will say my thinking was not at all to go into it because we came from this universe and because I was in my background before turning to financial planning, I was a CFO and COO of, of startup companies. I knew this universe pretty well, and in a way, it was too much fun as our own personal project to go and and switch gears. And I think it took a while to really let it sink all the way, and plus some wake-up calls from entrepreneur that we knew that we're crazy not to raise the money, to switch gears and say, okay, we maybe need to consider it. I think that the say from that entrepreneur we knew was, what are you doing? Why aren't you raising money? Are you crazy? If you're not going to do it and you got so far with no money, somebody else will see that, copy you, raise the money, get more engineers, get more resources and take it away from you. Don't do that. And so, but but I think when you're in it and we were 
everything but naive. I, I don't think we were naive doing it. I just think we got caught with, this was a lot of fun. I will say that. I went to work in the morning and I had a work that, you know, a job that I liked. I switched gears to this universe. Alon did his job. And then we had our kids, but that was our nights after we put the kids to bed and fun and passion and look at this and all these comments and emails and, and ideas and the community is growing. And it was very pure and, and great. And in a way, maybe at some point inside, I knew where it's heading, but I didn't want to accelerate it. And And frankly, I didn't think I'm going to be going there myself. So it was very comfortable to be in that position. And we worked from home at nights and it was our little baby back then. And I think in retrospect, delaying it and bootstrapping it the way we bootstrapped it without even understanding that this is what it is back then helped us tremendously down the road. And I will tell you this, many times entrepreneurs debate when is the right time to go and bring money in. And it's a tricky question because if you could easily get the money, and I know the markets are pretty hot right now to raise money, then why wouldn't you get the money and then start working on it, right? There is not much argument if you don't need to spend that much time on convincing investors and you potentially get the money pretty early on, then why not really? But in reality, most of the times are not like that. And most first-time entrepreneurs are not getting the money so quickly. When you're a serial entrepreneur, when you already have proven records, yes, it's definitely easier. Or when the market is really, really flooded with money, maybe it's easier. But in normal times, when you're a first-time entrepreneur, and you go to investors, it's quite a process. And there are two things from my experience that investors in first-time entrepreneurs want to see. One, they want to validate, of course, the idea, to see that this idea makes sense to them and they think it can scale tremendously and there'll be usage for that idea, whatever it is. And if they say yes to this first question about the idea and the concept, then they ask whether the entrepreneurs in front of them, who are first-time entrepreneurs with no experience, will be the ones to pull it all together and scale this and make it happen, right? Because, you know, statistically, whenever you have a good idea, probably there is someone else with something at least close to it somewhere else around the world, right? Working on something similar. So, so investors are asking themselves about the idea and the entrepreneurs. And I think bootstrap, that brings you to a success or at least some level of scale is stripping off these two questions. When we went to investors with hundreds of thousands of users with zero money invested in marketing, right? It was just us part-time investing our heart and soul in this project, right? But that was it. Nothing else. No money, no people. And these two questions went away. The fact that hundreds of thousands of people already use it and love it and spread it to others, and the fact that we did it part-time. I remember Orin, our first investor, said, oh my goodness, I can't imagine what you, you can do if you'll have more help, more people, and more money to fuel this. So that's my two cents to, again, I'm stripping away the fact that the market is, is pretty you know hot right now. And sometimes it feels like you don't need to invest that much time to convince investors. But if this is not the case, I much rather recommend, you know, to 
entrepreneurs, first-time entrepreneurs, go and validate your idea. Do something. You don't have to get to hundreds of thousands of users. Maybe we were very fortunate on that front. But build something, especially in software, is very different comparing to hardware where you need a lot of money to develop. Go, invest the first six months, validate. See that this idea can really scale. People will really use it. You're really invested in it and you really love it. And it's not just you, there are others. And then you will not need to prove these two things to investors. It's a much better use of your time than building decks of imaginary numbers that God knows how you're going to monetize this years down the road and whether you're going to get to hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. I mean, it's all, what does it mean for somebody that didn't even start to develop the product to put these numbers on a piece of paper or on a PowerPoint deck? I think the validation that comes from usage You can't buy this love. And if you have it, the investors will not question you. Love it. Validation over valuation. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So let's talk a little bit then about that moment. So you're at hundreds of thousands of users, you have validation, now you're seeking a valuation, all done at the right time. How did you go to market? Like how long was your process? What did you raise? Do you remember like broadly what your pitch was? Where was it going to take you to? Like give us some sort of snapshot of what that story was at that time. When was it? What were you hoping to do with the business? We always stayed very, very close to date to the original mission. Remember that we are the first users of our own platform uh, where we wanted to build the best technology and tools for 
homeowners like us and professionals in the industry to collaborate and help build and design beautiful homes. We wanted to be that hub, that technology, that platform that brings everybody together and empower a much better process for everyone. And that is the slide that we created back in 2010 and pitched to our first investor. We didn't have to pitch it to many, lucky us. And later on, we kept it uh, throughout the different rounds. And also every company meeting, we showed the same slides. We never change it. The leading platform for our home design and remodeling industry, bringing together the homeowners and professionals with the best tools and technology, empowering the process. So that was the mission. That's what we wanted to change. Our broken process, this fragmented industry had to change and technology, technology and visibility that will be used by a robust community of homeowners on one side and professionals from the industry on the other side was the core of the idea. When we pitched to the first investor and we already had thousands of active professionals, architects, designers, general contractors, and so on. Today, we have over 100 different type of professionals from the industry using it, which was very, very powerful because the investors, the original investors could see how this collaboration, a very visual collaboration between the two sides of the community is working very, very powerfully. And again, because they love it so much, they also recommend it and share it with others and it's growing organically. The first pitch, actually, our first investor came to our living room in our house and he saw this platform on our TV in our living room. And, you know, he said, I want to give you money. <laughs> I, I want to invest. And we thought that this is crazy. How can he decide so quickly? And he's saying that by the end of the week, we can have the money in the bank. How can it be? Again, the times were very different than now, and we were first time, you know, doing something so meaningful like this. And so it was almost too good to be true, but he did. And he gave us our first $2 million um, at the end of that week that he promised. Seven months later, he said that we should bring um, institutional investor, like a VC, which originally we said, no, 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 we don't want any VC. That will ruin all the fun. You already joined the family, but we don't need VCs there. You know, and he said, it's your call. I'm, you're in the driver's seat. I just recommend it because I do think that it will be very powerful to recruit top talent in the Silicon Valley. We ended up agreeing to just meet casually for tea, or coffee, no pitch at Sand Hill Road, no presentations, no crazy decks with imaginary numbers. Same with him. You know, we just want the personal connection, people that will believe in this vision and in what we're doing would not force us to do what we don't want to do. And so we met Sequoia and Mike Moritz and Alfred Lean showed up at our tiny office. At that point, we were 11 people. Alan and myself and nine more. We didn't even have conference rooms at the office, which was one small open space. And they came and sat on beanbags and looked at the demo in this small office. And then we went outside to a um, nice, you know, coffee place and had um, tea and coffee. And they said, we want to invest. And that was it. And, you know, they invested in valuation that was 10x than what we've got just seven months before. So things started working from there. But the thing was always for us, it's less about the valuation. 
It's more about the people, the why, how this relationship is going to work long term. That's what we're trying to maximize because we're having fun. And if we're going to bring the right people, we will be able to maintain this fun. And if we'll make a mistake here, that will be extremely hard to fix. So that was the guidance for ourselves. And I'm happily reporting here that we were very lucky on that front that this is the path that we created uh, for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty unusual to get someone like Mike Moritz, you know, who's actually Silicon Valley fame as much as you could possibly get from an investor, turn up and sort of like keep the whole process so casual. That's quite exciting. Were you aware of, of who he was, his credentials and stuff? I'm assuming so, but I'm, I'm curious. The interesting part was Oren Zev, our first investor that also recommended that we'll bring a VC on board, sat with us, you know, a few weeks prior to this meeting. And when we agreed to consider it, we started narrowing down which firms in the Silicon Valley we perceived as the top firms and which individuals in these specific firms we perceived as the top investors. And we narrowed down the list to very few firms with very specific individuals in these firms. And a few days, maybe three, four days before that meeting, Oren sent these emails to these individuals in these very few firms if they're interested in taking a look, casual, no promise. He's not even sure we're going to take money. We're not going to do any official pitches or anything like this. And Mike Moritz responded immediately. And he said, he obviously shared or shared some info about where we're at and, and what's going on, but he responded immediately. He acted really fast. And on that Monday, I, I'm saying it was three, four days after that email was sent, he was already, you know, sitting on that beanbag at the office with us. And we met with another company and again, top firms that met with us the same week. We got the same week, two term sheets. We actually got so not confused, but overwhelmed almost, like, what's going on? We were not even sure we're going to raise money. Now we have two term sheets. What are we going to do? And what about the other meetings that we scheduled for next week? So it was a lot to consume at very early stages. And we barely touched the original $2 million that Oren gave us. Remember, we were very frugal. We knew how to be very hands-on and scrappy early days. So we didn't know. But I will say about Sequoia, they really, really wanted it. And Mike Moritz knows his game. So I remember getting to, a few days after they gave us the term sheet and we didn't know what to do. We met for another <laughs> coffee slash tea with him and Alfred. And he said, why aren't you signing my term sheet? And I said, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so honored. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you gave us this term sheet. But to be honest with you, it's not perfect. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thinking about it. He said, what's not perfect about my term sheet? And so I just pointed to several sections and there were nothing, you know, really bad, just that we had a very founder-friendly original investment from Oren. And so I learned my game already and I knew what's really founder-friendly and what would be very helpful down the road. So I just pointed to a few things there. And he said, no problem. And he took a pen and he crossed every single thing that I said, it's not ideal, it's not perfect, and changed it to perfect. And then when he was done, him and Alfred looked at each other and they said, is it perfect now? 
and I couldn't say a word. And he said, so now please sign it. Can you please sign it? And so how can you say no to a partner that really wants you to come happy to the table? Um, and so that was it. You never hear this about VCs. So I'm really glad that you shared that story because it is helpful as well. So, you know, give a full perspective. You always hear about the other side, the dark side, the stuff that doesn't go well, when it doesn't go well. It's great to hear the motivation and also, you know, someone with as much of a reputation as him, I think it's great to hear why, right? Because clearly gets stuff done, knows what he wants to invest in. Let's move forward then. So you've obviously, you know, that's years later, you've built up a community around the world. Like give us a little bit of a narrative of where Howe's got to from that pivotal moment. What funding did you take in? Where did that get you? How did it take you to where you are today? Like give us the snapshot. So in terms of House today, from us being the original homeowners of the community, we now have 65 million homeowner members in the community and from around the world, and from a few thousand professionals that we were able to ramp up to at the point that Oren invested in us and, and we turned it into a real company, we got to 2.7 million professionals that are active with profiles on the platform around the world. So it grew quite a bit. It started from the Bay Area, spread it to California, and then to other parts of the U.S. But in 2013, we discovered that the usage is actually much more global than we thought, and that we have certain buckets and countries where we have pretty similar proportion of homeowners and pros collaborating from the same country, which is always a good sign of the need in that industry for that technology, that platform, that collaboration tools to connect the dots for the homeowners and the professionals in the industry that are helping them with the buildups and, and renovation. And with that, in 2014, we started launching house locally in different countries. We did it in 15 countries outside of the U.S., Europe and Australia were um, the first expansion, not all at once. We, we picked two, three, four, depends on the year, countries. UK was the first batch, um, and it grew a lot since then um, in terms of the community and the usage. It, it seems to people from the outside sometimes that, oh, UK is easy because it's English, but it's not so much because... Yes, English is helping, but first of all, I, I don't need to tell you, there is a lot of, of verbiage around the home specifically and in general that the British English and um, the American English are not the same and we had to respect it. I had to learn myself. You, you say backsplash versus splashback. You, you say a lift versus an elevator. Color, you don't spell the same. And a loft means something very different in the UK versus in the US. You learn pretty quickly that different type of professionals exist in the US. And when, you know, there are um, sun room additions, they meant to do something very different in the UK and solve different problems. That the space is different because there are lots of smaller spaces and you need to solve different problems, different type of professionals. And so being with that mindset that house is very global, the, the issues and the challenges, but also the opportunities are very global. We have an industry that is enormous, is very, very big. Many people 
are buying secondhand homes and they need to, or, or they have their own and, and they need to renovate them and adjust them uh, for their needs, whether they are expanding them or just changing their functionality. They are investing a lot of time, energy, and work. Many times they do need professional help. They can do it themselves. We're not talking about decor. We're talking about heavy renovation stuff, kitchen, bathrooms, building homes from scratch, adding additions. It's pretty massive. And yet the tools and the technology and the visibility into who to bring into your house, how much it's going to cost, how much time it's going to take, how it's going to look like at the end is so broken that many people say, this is crazy. I don't want to even start. Why? Why something that's supposed to give you your wonderful space at the end where you'll be happier and safer and, and feel better about why the process together needs to be so frustrating. So this is a common ground. And it's true, In I can say it by now, in every single country that we went to, it's the same. There is a broken industry with lots of frictions, but tons of opportunity to bring everybody together, to put the right tools in their hands, and to empower them to have a much better process. So from us being the first homeowners to 65 million homeowners, to several professionals that started it with us in the Bay Area, to 2.7 million professionals around the world. The expansion globally went to Europe, and then of course from UK and Ireland, we expanded later on to France and Germany and Italy and Spain, so lots of other countries in, in Europe. Um, we expanded to Australia and Japan, and. We definitely <laughs> spread it to different um, directions. But in all these places, we had a few very strong things in common. The need was very, very prominent, and it came both from homeowners and from professionals in the industry. So there was always a core, a robust core of community members that wanted to help us localize it. And the journey in general, you know, the way that you um, you retell it, you know, it sounds very up and to the right. So what have been some of those moments where it hasn't necessarily all been completely smooth sailing? And, um, you know, obviously a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this story now can relate to very unlikely to just be an up and to the right story. So what are some of the more uh, challenging times that you recall on your journey that you want to share? Yeah, I would say about our journey, it's everything but up to the right. It's absolutely not that. From start to finish, obviously, when questions are being asked and it's more about growth and, and rounds and you see over a course of over 10 years that progress, you say, oh, it's up to the right. But you need to remember that along that journey, you have lots of ups and downs. And when you're in that down when you're in that down, or should I say, if you're on the roller coaster, you're up there and you don't know whether you're going to fall or not, it doesn't feel like, you know, you're up to the right. It feels like it's real danger, right? I don't know if it's going to continue. And it can happen at any stage. It happened to Alon and I, even before we raised the first round, we got stuck with around 20,000 users and it, it got stuck there for a while. And at some point we asked ourselves, is that it? You know, it was fun, it's great, but it sounds like we got to maybe enough people that are interested in that and and maybe there there is no more interest. You know, you don't know. If you don't know the people, if you're not enough time in it, you never know whether it's just a hiccup or a downtime or, or a blip or something that you need to change or part of a journey that long-term will look like a small blip that you won't even notice it. You don't know. And so it's always a very, very delicate balance between, yeah, I need to keep 
jumping here and um, keep working on it because at the end I'll get out of it and I'll be stronger or now this is the wrong direction. I need to change something. It's not going to work. And of course, there is always that big question, especially early days. Is that even a thing? Is that going to be a thing, a big? Should we continue investing in it? At some point, you cross that line and you know it is. But until that point, you don't have any assurance and, and you you feel confused. And I will say along the way, we had many of these moments. Some were like small blips. Some ended up more meaningful things that we had to change directionally. And it's hard because you never know. Sometimes you do something small and you think, oh, that can be nice addition. And all of a sudden there is a huge adoption and it's really changing the game for the users or for the revenue. And you see a meaningful uptick from it. And sometimes you really think that something is going to be really big and you work a long time on it and then you release it and it's not. It's a flop. And then, you know, you you, you need to call it a day at some point. So I think we've been through a lot of it on the business front. If you ask me what's the hardest, the hardest is probably when you make mistakes about people or when something doesn't work out with people and your decisions will impact people. Business decisions you can change. If you accept it that it's part of life, you're going to win some, lose some, hopefully win more than lose. It will be up and down, but hopefully it's up to the right altogether. Even with all these downs, you understand it's a roller coaster. It's all fine on the business front. I think when you have people involved and they're going to potentially get hurt because of these, that's the hardest. And you try to minimize it as much as possible. You invest your heart and at least us, you know, invest our hearts and soul in everything that is related to people from hiring them to maintaining relationship to working together as, as a team. But sometimes it doesn't work. And, and that's the most painful thing. And we've been through this as well. Not fun, for sure. And pretty tough to deal with. But I guess... It's part of life and we can't ignore it. We can just try to do it in a way that would minimize always impact on people. And, and if we get to these points, to be very thoughtful and sensitive. So what is the worst story that you have experienced from like a community or customer point of view that still makes you shudder? And, you know, flip side to that, which is what is the best? What is the most uplifting, the warmest, the happiest? Yeah, I would say for me, any even small complaint on happiness of a professional or homeowner that leveraged a platform, I take it to heart. And we really, I always say I want to please 100% of our users. I want them to always be extremely happy about everything that happened. Unfortunately, I can't do that. And it doesn't matter what it is, an order that didn't come on time for a homeowner in the U.S. or a pro that found it difficult to use something and got really frustrated and now felt that something fell through the crack or another one. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is. We need to do it better. So so we always do um, three things when something like this happened behind the scenes. We are trying to address it immediately with the client and see how we can improve it or make it better, if possible. And for me, it's a big win when we can 
take an upset client and please that client at the end. That's even better than pleasing from the front because we improved, right? And we showed a goodwill here and and we did it. So if we couldn't do it from the beginning, at least we fixed the situation. And there is no one story for me, even the smallest thing from the outside, I can be very unhappy when I, when I see something like this. On the happy side, of course, you know, any success story is a great story. In 2014, I'll never forget that, I flew into Sydney, Australia to launch House Australia. And we did a small launch party for about 100 professionals from the community in Sydney that really helped us build it from the ground up in Australia with localization and everything. And here comes someone named um, Dominic at the audience, He's an architect. He flew in from Melbourne and he comes with his wife full of gratitude and telling me an amazing story how he discovered house in the U.S. There wasn't house Australia. He was um, severely sick and him and his wife, like Alan and I, worked together, husband and wife, both architects. He had a um, health issue, which put a lot of uh, stress and the business and the family and everything that happened there. And while he was recovering after many months of not being able to work, he discovered House US. You know, he was skeptical that it will do something in Australia because it was obviously very local in the US, but he decided to take a chance, he had nothing to lose, <laughs> and upload his portfolio and create a profile in House US. And a short time after, a house user, a homeowner, in Australia, reached out to him and he saw his portfolio and he said, hey, I just bought a church that got a permit from the city to convert into a residential home. And I saw your portfolio on house. Would you be interested in helping me converting this to a residential home? Do you want to take a look? And he said, oh yeah, of course. And he went with his wife. They saw the project. Of course, it was a magical project. Make a long story short, he took the project. He renovated an amazing house, you know, in that church. And at the end of the process, he uploaded the project to house. And then our editorial team back in Palo Alto that was monitoring all projects that we get around the world noticed this unique, very different church without knowing that the homeowners and the professional found each other on house. They reached out and they said, hey, can you tell us more about it? We want to write it and send it to our millions of users, if you don't mind. And he said, no, I don't mind. And so from there, a dig in into the project and a story about it. I don't want to go into all these details, but his business was growing like crazy. He started being interviewed in TV shows. He got clients from house from Singapore, from Europe. He started doing business with professionals in the U.S., exporting products from Australia to the pros in the U.S. because of the unique materials he used. And he came all the way to basically tell me how all the dots connected and the community around the world is coming together and converting churches is becoming a trend, but his business regardless is thriving and his his wife are so happy and all this couldn't have happened without the right tools, the right platform, the right technology 
But uh, he wants me to know how much impact that can have on a small business owner on the other side of the world. So he took that flight and came to say thank you. And I can tell you that for me, it's not the money. It's not all these things. It's not the numbers. When you know that you do something good, that you change someone's life, whether it's a homeowner that had a wonderful magical process to create their beautiful home or a professional that couldn't make a living before and now their business is thriving and and growing, you feel good. Technology can really make an impact here and we're really trying. So this is a story that I'll never forget, but I have many other amazing stories like this. That is beautiful. Adi, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have an amazing next 10 years of the business. Thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders. Thank you, Dan. It was lovely chatting with you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week, you're going to hear from one of my favorite entrepreneurs in the UK and also a very long-time listener of the show, so I know he's going to be listening, Nick Telson. He founded Design My Night, a highly successful bootstrap business, and now has his hands full in venture capital and with a new business he's just launching too. Find out what he's got up to and up his sleeve next week on Secret Leaders. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and I was the host of this episode. Editing was done by Lower Street Media, with Will Stolomon, our head of podcast, Bring It All Together.